All right, we come back to Hebrews chapter 6. This is a much-discussed chapter, much-discussed issue in the text that has to be dealt with, and we've been looking at it from, for some time. There is a serious warning, isn't there? A stern warning in this text that gets our attention and has put many people to wonder what it means. How are we to understand it? And so we've seen this warning, and then last Sunday there was sort of a shift in the text, wasn't there? From this stern warning that's offered, by the way, not retracted, it is a standing warning uh, for all to hear and to understand. But last Sunday we saw that the author says, I'm confident of better things concerning you. Particularly, he says, the things that accompany salvation. So he's saying, although this warning stands and must be taken seriously and listened to and heeded and even feared, I'm confident that it's not speaking to you. Because I believe that you are part of the people of God, and that you have these better things which accompany salvation, which we looked at last week. Further, the author testifies to the perfect faithfulness of God, that God is faithful to remember those deeds that they've done. God will not forget. He will not shuffle them off. He will not overlook the things that they've done. All of that we looked at last Sunday. They've been diligent. They've had a diligence in doing good. And you may remember it said that they were doing good to those of the household of faith, if you will. To their brothers and sisters, they were repeatedly, and even to this moment, ministering to the people of God. And that is a good thing. But he says, I wish you were as diligent as you are there in holding to the promises of God. In trusting them, believing them, remaining steadfast in them. There would be no talk then of you maybe slinking or shifting away. Now, ultimately, we say this author doesn't believe that that's going to happen because he believes that they are of the heavenly calling. But he says you need to recognize the importance of this because perseverance is the ultimate confirmation of our justification. Jesus says those who persevere to the end shall be saved. We are not saved by our perseverance, but we would say those who are saved, those who are justified, will persevere because those who are justified are being sanctified and must be glorified right there is no break in that and so therefore if you've been justified it will be shown in your continuing sanctification and ultimately in your glorification and so again that is the promise of God now what are we to do with God's promises well I think we can just say like an elementary lesson is what we should believe them right we should believe them and that's going to be dealt with today so you remember last week when he said in this There are those that God has raised up before us that are examples to us. And what was the message there? Imitate them. Imitate them. This is what Paul said. Imitate me or follow me as I follow the Lord. Well, this message is there are many people you can imitate. There are many who have walked through difficult times, stood by faith, steadfast in the faith. To them, look. To them, look. Now, the Bible is full of them. We mentioned this is kind of an early segue to what's coming in Hebrews chapter 11 with the hall of faith, right? Look to all these great men and women that God has raised up who have shown that even in difficult periods they could stand by what? Their own strength? No, by faith. By faith, believing in the promises of God. And so you would expect, because this author is very thorough, right? Almost everything he's dealt with, he then goes into it again and again, making sure you understand it. And so we will not be surprised today to find 
that when he says, you should look to those who have come before and imitate them, he's going to give us an example, isn't he? He's going to say, I'll give you an example of just the sort of thing I'm talking about. And so today, we will not be surprised to look forward at the example of Abraham, who believed God even through great difficulty, believed God, trusted God steadfastly, and this author says, received what God promised. Received what God promised. So I want to read the text. I want to read the little bit longer portion that deals with what we looked at last week and we'll look at next week and just hear it all together. But beloved, standing on the the heels, if you will, of this serious warning that's been given. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those through whose faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is, the end of a dis- is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge and lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, as we come to this today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, Abraham's perseverance. Second of all, God's promise, and then lastly, our consolation. So beginning first with Abraham's perseverance, this inspired author uh, is just said we need an, an example, or we need faithful examples to look to who persevered through faith and who received the promise. And as I said, he never leaves us without going that extra step of giving us the things he says we need in the text. And so he does that again. He gives us example of Father Abraham, right? An example... Every Jewish Christian would certainly know. Every Christian really knows the example of Abraham. He's presented as an excellent example to us. Here is the man who St. Paul uses as the example par excellence of what it means to be justified by faith. He says, long before the law was ever given, Abraham was declared as just before God, in right standing with the holy and righteous God. How? Not by his works. But it says he believed God, and unto him it was accounted for righteousness. And so again, we recognize this example that's given over and over again in Scripture. Abraham was one who exemplified faith. He's used often as the example for us of faith, of how to live by faith. And the other side of that equation is he's an example of how we live by faith. Right? For Abraham, faith was not like a, a checklist of things he mentally assented to. But as this author is trying to get to over and over again, 
it informed and directed and guided his entire life. Everything that we see in Abraham is an outworking of the faith of Abraham in his life. God at work in him by this faith. And so it's evidenced in all of his life. And so uh, all the things that we can think of that we point to over and again about the gospel we see in the life of Abraham, he was a sinner, a pagan, but he was reconciled to God, right? And how was he reconciled? By faith, by faith. He was justified by faith alone, not his works, but he didn't stay justified outside of works. Do you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't he had a justification that then did not bring forth works. Abraham is an example that the justification that God offers is followed by sanctification necessarily. And sanctification is, brings forth works. That's what we have testified to over and again in this journey. And so again, all these elements of the gospel are seen in the life of Abraham. He is one who had the fruits of faithfulness. He was not the bad ground that would be burnt. He was the good ground, bringing forth herbs, as this author has said, that are useful. He is an example to us of what it means to be justified by faith in God, a justification that transforms and changes who we are, and yes, that brings forth fruit. So there are many moments in Abraham's life that we could point to, couldn't we? We could talk about the very beginning of the story in Genesis for Abraham, where he is called out of Ur of the Chaldees. That took some faith, right? To leave your family, to leave the connections you had, your community, and to go out because God told you to. That took faith. That took faith. And so we could point to examples like that. But there is one prime moment that this author has in mind because his quotation comes from Genesis chapter 22. Now this is a, a story we know. But again, it's this moment where Abraham is called after having received this promise of a son who would come, and he has waited. That's another of those things, evidences of his faith, that he waited and waited and trusted and trusted. He got impatient. We know he made some mistakes along the way, didn't he? Tried to set up his own heir. Whether it be Eleazar, Lord, let Eleazar be my heir, or whether it was creating an heir. Right? He made mistakes. But as God corrected him in those mistakes and said, uh, no, Ishmael shall not be the heir. He shall not stand before me, but one that I give you will be the heir. Abraham was called to patiently wait, and he did, and he did, until eventually the heir came. Isaac was born. But you all know the story. The story doesn't end with the birth of Isaac, does it? Abraham's journey goes through Genesis chapter 22, where God calls Abraham to take Isaac the son of the promise, the one he had waited for and knew that all the promises of God flowed through. And God says, take him to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice. Now it's easy for us to read that as a children's story or to think of it in those kind of terms and not think about what that moment was for Abraham. As he was wrestling with, why is God asking me to do this? And what does this mean knowing that the promises that he's given me flow through this son? This son. And as we read that text, uh, we wrestle with that. It's amazing. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're kind of given the key to understanding all of it, aren't we? That Abraham had such confidence in the promise of God that he said, if God has declared the promises go through this son, and if I sacrifice him, then the only thing I can figure out is God must necessarily raise him from the dead. Now that is amazing faith. And that is the faith of Abraham that we're called to Think about, he was 
so trusting in the steadfast faithfulness of God that he said, even if I do this thing, which is to me almost unthinkable to do, but that God is seeming to call me to do, even if I do this, God will still keep his promise. Even if it would seem impossible by any human standard that he could, I believe he'll bring my son back to life in order to keep his promise. Again, you can see this author saying, we need to have that kind of faith in God, don't we? We need to say, if God has said it, it will be done. It will be accomplished. God's word shall not fail. And so there is a call to look to Abraham who had a confidence in the promise of God Even in the face of great difficulty, I would say being called to sacrifice the one who you've waited for as the son of promise is great difficulty. That is a moment of great challenge. And here Abraham stands in that moment and trusts God. Now, again, he's a picture of enduring faith that is given to us. He went up on that mountain and he left the mountain with his son. Think about that for a moment. What a picture that is. Hebrews 11, again, we'll eventually get there. But it's going to have us think about that as a, as a picture, right? As a, as a shadow of a greater thing that, in fact, when God promised him a son, he received him back, right? As if from the dead, because he took him up there to sacrifice him, and he left that mountain with him. So God uh, had kept his promise. Isaac is the one through whom the seed Uh, will come through whom all these promises will come. It is through Isaac. And so God had been steadfastly faithful to his promise, to his purpose. And Abraham was justified, if you will, in that sense. Not justified before God in terms of being right before God, but he was justified in believing God. It proved that he was right. That's what I'm saying, that he had been right to believe God and to trust God because God will keep his promises. So there is a stern warning in this text of chapter 6. We don't want to miss that, but there's also a reminder here, a gracious reminder, a good reminder to us that God's promises are steadfast. And He calls us to persevere and trust in those promises. In, in other words, don't let our current situation, whatever it may be, interfere with believing that God is steadfast in His purpose. Right? We, as human beings, can often do that. We can begin to look at our situation and say, Oh, God has left me. He's forgotten me. Maybe that's what's going on with this community in Hebrews. They're saying persecution's arising. Has God forgotten us? Not all that different from the Exodus story. In Egypt, in slavery, has God forgotten us? And the answer is no, God has not forgotten. Your current situation doesn't change God's steadfast faithfulness. And Abraham understood that and believed it. Even in the most dire and difficult of situations, this author is saying even in a situation far more difficult than the one you're in, Hebrew Christian listeners, or us today, believers at North John City Baptist Church. And that brings us to our second point this morning, to God's promise. Because ultimately the example here that Abraham points to is of God's faithfulness. Abraham believed that, he trusted it. That was his assumption, right, that you can trust God. God will do what He says. He will keep His word. He is steadfastly faithful to His promises. But that text proves it. The very thing that Abraham went to that mountain hoping that I will walk down the mountain with my son, whatever happens upon that mountain, happened. Isaac lived. Isaac was there that the promises of God would be fulfilled. Abraham believed it and God proved it. And so again, 
this text reminds us that while we're focusing, focusing on Abraham, we're really called to focus on what Abraham's focus was. And that wasn't himself, that was God. God is the one who made the promises to Abraham. Abraham did not make these promises. He had no authority to make any promises. Abraham couldn't say, I'm going to one day have a son, and through that son I declare that a salvific work of God must take place. No. Abraham has no authority to do that. God did that. God made that promise. It is God who is the giver and guarantor of the promise, not Abraham. It is God who had called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. It is God who gave Abraham the promise of blessing and of land and of a son and even of being a blessing. Right? Part of that promise is not just of land, not just of a son, not just of blessing, but of being a blessing. And you may even wonder in those earlier parts of, of Genesis how exactly that's going to be. It's made more clear in our text that's being referenced today in Genesis 22. But it is God who has made these promises. And Abraham believed those promises and was ready to offer up Isaac even if that's what was required, trusting that God would keep them. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis for just a second because it's key to understanding what we're looking at today. Now, you all know this story, but I'm going to read it because I think it's important for us to think about because this author is quoting it. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now again, you might wonder, reading Genesis, why would Abraham say that? Because there's a good chance he won't bring Isaac back with him. But When we read Hebrews 11, we know he believed Isaac was coming back with him. Whatever God had to do to make that happen. And so again, we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And then this key promise, in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. My friends, that's a famous text. We grew up hearing that text. It's an important text, isn't it? In fact, to exposit that text, there is so much there, isn't there, of pictures and of uh, what God is doing uh, in his promises. And so it's a great text, an important text, a key text, we would even say. But as we think about it this morning, we want to recognize that there is also something here of an oath, isn't there? Maybe if we were walking through it, we wouldn't focus on the oath. But going through Hebrews 6, we are called to focus upon the oath. He says, God says, by myself, I have sworn. In me, I swear. In me, I give a vow. I give an oath that something will take place. Now, my friends, a... Oath is something important. It's something that we offer, isn't it? To make sure our word is trusted as steadfast or sure. Maybe you'll say something like, I swear that it's true. I swear. Right? That means I'm really serious. You can trust what I'm saying. It doesn't necessarily mean that, right? If a person's not trustworthy to begin with, does their oath really mean a whole lot? But there is a biblical call to believe oaths. And Jesus said we should always speak as if our Word is the truth, so that we don't have to give an oath, right? We should always speak truth and therefore not need to give an oath. But there are places in Scripture that speak of oaths. If you'll turn to Exodus chapter 22 very quickly, you'll see the text that most scholars think is being referenced here. In Exodus 22 verse 9, we're going to be looking, excuse me, verse 10 and 11. It says, if a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one's seeing it. So in other words, you've given charge of your animal to your neighbor, and they're going to keep it for you, and something happens to it. It disappears, it gets injured, whatever the case may be, to where the person says, I I don't know what happened. It didn't happen because of any negligence of my part. It didn't happen because of any fault of mine. Not sure what happened. It says this, If no one saw what happened, it says, Then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's good, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. In other words, if the thought I think here is either that you purposely harmed the animal to spite your neighbor or you stole it and you said, Oh, it disappeared. I don't know what happened. Right? And your neighbor has no idea because he's not been present. And there are no witnesses to establish, was it stolen or what happened to it? Then at the end of the day, what the law of Moses says is, let the one give an oath, swear, right, before the Lord that he is not responsible for the loss of that animal and he will not have to make good upon it. Now we know if we were to walk through the law, not our purpose this morning, we would know if it is your fault that your neighbor's animal gets injured or harmed, you are responsible for making good on that, aren't you? To, to replace it. That is uh, part of the law. And here it's saying if we don't know what happened, we cannot establish guilt. 
then if he makes an oath that he had nothing to do with it, that he is not at fault in any way, then he is not to make good on it. He is not required to replace it or to give the value of it. And that is to be based on an oath. An oath. Now, let's turn back really quick to Hebrews because we know something of oaths, don't we? Even in our justice system, we say, well, that's the, the law of Moses. But what about our justice system? If you get called into court to testify in some manner, you're going to go up and sit on a stand, and before a judge and possibly a jury and whoever's in the courtroom, you're going to be asked to put your hand on a Bible and to take an oath that you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So we still have oaths. People say all kinds of oaths in their regular life, like, oh, I swear to whatever, whether it be blasphemous or um, somebody's grave or their children, they swear on things. That's meant to be like, oh, I can take this seriously. But even in court, we take oaths that our testimony is true, is true. Well, we can see here in the law of Moses that if a person gave a testimony, an oath, it was to be accepted. And oftentimes, if you read about it, uh, they would swear on, as God lives, so I say. Well, the idea was if they're lying, that's between them and God. You accept their oath, and if they are lying, that's between them and God. Let God judge the manner. And so an oath is important. There is a, a part here we see in the Scriptures of an oath testifying to the truth. So we're swearing on something when we do that greater than ourselves. You don't get in court and say, uh, Rick Powell, by your own integrity, do you promise? Well, whatever I'm saying is by my integrity, right? I mean, I don't need to swear on my integrity. I'm up there as honest as I am is my testimony. And so they say, no, that's not good enough. You must swear on the Word of God, right? You must swear that what you're saying is true. But here's the problem. Genesis chapter 22 tells us that God took an oath. And that should immediately bring to mind some, some things that are complicated that we'd have to think about. What would God swear upon? God cannot swear upon any person greater than himself. He cannot swear upon anything greater than himself because there is nothing greater than God. So the only thing left for God to swear upon is himself, to swear by himself. And that's what this text tells us, that it's by God's promise, by God's own word, by God's own character that he makes this oath. Now again, something else we might think of is, why does God need to do that? His word is already perfect. Paul says in Romans that his word does not fail to stand. Isaiah said his word does not fail to accomplish exactly what he sends it out to accomplish. God's word is perfect. Why does he need to give an oath? Well, he swears it by himself. His promise is enough, and yet he still graciously gives an oath. Now, why does he do that? Well, look at what the text says. Look at what the text says. It says that he offered this oath as a confirmation. Simply to say, what I've said in the past, I'm still meaning, I'm still accomplishing, I'm still doing. And that brings us to our third point this morning, very quickly. Our consolation. Because if you look at it, he says, we've been given, or Abraham was given both a promise and an oath confirming that promise. He was given both of these things, and they're both given by one who cannot lie. It is not compatible with his nature. He cannot do it. He cannot lie. And so we are given 
two things that he says are immutable. Immutable meaning unchangeable. His promise cannot change. His oath cannot change. You're given two evidences of that which cannot change. He didn't need to give it. He didn't know us the promise. He didn't have to give the promise. He graciously gave the promise. He certainly didn't need to give an oath. Well, why did he give an oath then? It wasn't for his good. It was for our good. And not even for Abraham. Think about this for a minute. It's for our consolation, not Abraham's consolation. Abraham believed God before the, the oath was ever made. The oath is made after Abraham obeyed and showed that he would trust God and do whatever God called him to do. So it wasn't for Abraham's good. Look again at what it says. It says, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. That's not Abraham. That's Isaac. That's go on down the road. That is, guess what? The, the people to whom this letter is being written, and it's to us if we are in Christ. We are the heirs of the promise. And if we are the heirs of the promise, then what it means is this oath was given for our good to show more abundantly to us that God keeps His word, that it is not changing. It is not, it is not changing at all. His promise is steadfast and trustworthy. Now, why is that important? Because this gives us, as he says, Paraclesis, encouragement, exhortation, right? Consolation, comfort, and encouragement that we can move on and trust God, whatever our current circumstances, just as Abraham did. Whatever situation you're in is not as serious as Abraham's. Not likely, right? And so you can trust God as Abraham trusted God. We find not only encouragement and consolation, he says we will find strong encouragement and consolation. Because we see that God does not change, nor does His Word, nor does His promise. They are trustworthy. They do not change. And so I want to close this morning by pointing out that the ones who are mentioned here as heirs of the promise are also called those who have fled for refuge to the hope set before us. If you are in Christ, that is you, isn't it? If you're in Christ, you are one who fled from the wrath that is to come and fled into the hope and promise offered only in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ. Now that is the reality. So this is speaking to you. He's saying we have these two immutable things, the promise and the oath, and God cannot lie. And this is strong consolation for us who have fled for refuge in the hope and promise set before us. That's what Abraham did. He trusted in God. He believed in that promise. He found refuge in it. And we are called to too. And if we've done that, then we have a great hope. And the reason we have that great hope is that promise isn't going to change. His word isn't going to change. Regardless of your current circumstance, regardless of how you feel today, it doesn't change your standing before a holy and righteous God. If you've been in a little bit of a spiritual lull, then wake up. Get back to it. That's what this author said. Be no more lazing in your hearing. Be no no more complacent. Don't be lazy when it comes to these things. But get back at it again. But just because you're feeling that way does not mean God has changed in His disposition towards you. If you are in Christ, you are reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And so again... 
That's true regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your trials, your temptations, the situation that you are in. If you are in Christ, your position cannot and will not change regardless of how the world around you may change. That is what these believers needed to hear because they were being tossed and tried and in much difficulty and they, realize, they need to realize that in Christ Jesus, they are in that safe haven. Don't sail by it. You have an anchor. We're going to come to that next Sunday. So again, hold Cling to the steadfast promises of God, the hope set before us. Lay hold of them, realizing that by God's grace they are unchangeable and 100% trustworthy. Amen.